Managing Editor for MedTech Insight. Welcome to our new series on Getting Personal, which takes a look behind the scenes of an executive's busy life. And today, I'm thrilled to welcome our first guest, Sydney Collin, who is the CEO of Deora Devices. She and her team developed a unique portable device called Nextstride to help people with Parkinson's disease overcome freezing gait. But we'll learn a lot more from Sydney. So, Sydney, welcome to our podcast today. And I'm thrilled that you're here to talk to me a bit about your personal life and your plans for the company. So, would you mind starting us off by introducing our listeners to the company and to Nextstride? Sure. Um, thank you, Marion, for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you today. So, Dare Devices, our mission as a company is to help people with mobility disorders be able to walk safely, confidently, and independently outside of the physical therapy clinic or outside of the rehab hospital. So, as you mentioned, our first product is Nextstride, which originally was focused towards people with Parkinson's. And what we do is we you know, use visual and auditory cues that are standard of practice in any physical therapy clinic, and we make them portable and available at home for people to be able to continue their care at home outside of the PT clinic to overcome freezing of gait for people with Parkinson's. Um, but it's also effective in stroke rehab and multiple sclerosis and PSP um, and traumatic brain injury and a number of other neurological disorders. Yeah. So would you mind explaining to some of the listeners who may not be familiar with the term freezing gate, what exactly that is? And then just kind of tell us a little bit. You have a very interesting story of how you actually started your company. So freezing of gait is medically defined as a sudden onset of immobility. Um, it's one of the most common and one of the most debilitating symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Uh, people will describe it as feeling like their feet are glued to the floor or stuck in a box of cement. So what happens is all of a sudden, you know, if someone's walking through a doorway or, um, you know, they're changing terrain, going from hardwood floor to a carpet, all of a sudden it'll feel like their feet are glued to the floor. They won't be able to take a step. And many times their body's momentum will continue forward and that will result in falls. So it's one of the leading causes of falls for people with Parkinson's disease. So that's freezing of gait. And then the way that I got into this um, is I studied biomedical engineering at Cal Poly. And while I was in school, I met a local veteran named Jack Brill, who lived with Parkinson's disease and he suffered from freezing of gait. And this was the worst symptom of Parkinson's that he experienced. This was the only reason that he was stuck in a wheelchair most of the time, um, because his freezing was so bad that, you know, his wife and his and his primary care provider had some concerns about him being up walking and, and thinking that that might result in falls for him. And so what I did was I really just built this device for him. He knew that these visual and auditory cues worked already because he had been using them in his physical therapy clinic. And he really just wanted a way to have access to those same visual and auditory cues at home. From my perspective, you know, I had a background in computational neuroscience doing brain-computer interfacing research and deep brain stimulation and an EEG neurofeedback for children with ADHD. Um, so when I heard about these visual and auditory cues, I looked more on the research side to try and understand, okay, what is actually happening and why are these visual and auditory cues effective? Because if you tell somebody one minute, you know, somebody's falling and has to be in a wheelchair, but if you put a green laser line in front of them, all of a sudden they can walk safely, you know, 
there's clearly some information missing in there. So I started to look into the research and what I found is that what we're actually doing is we're using these visual and auditory cues to activate goal-oriented neural pathways in the brain instead of automatic neural pathways, which is what people generally use to start walking. And in people with Parkinson's, those automatic neural pathways are are damaged or it's harder for people to be able to initiate. And so we are essentially just changing the reason why somebody's walking. We're changing the intent behind the movement and that changes the part of the brain that's being activated and allows someone to be able to restore mobility. Thank you so much. That was a really great explanation. You know, I'm curious, sometimes people get into a certain field because of their upbringing, some type of experience, you know, how has your upbringing shaped your career and, and your interest in neurology? Yeah, good question. So I think part of that question, we can talk about the topic of neuroscience and how I got into neuroscience. And I think the other part of it, we can talk about entrepreneurship, you know, why start a company. Um, so let me start with the entrepreneurship side, and then we can get into um, why I got into to brain science. So I, I never really thought that I would be the person to start a company, to be honest. I mean, I think a lot of people grow up thinking, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start a company. I'm going to do this one day and I'm just not sure when, and I'm not sure what it's going to be, but I'm going to do it. That was not me at all. However, I think it's easy to look back and see, okay, here are the things that allowed me to learn what I needed to learn to be able to be a successful entrepreneur. For example, you know, I grew up with a lot of independence. I went to a 4,000 person public high school, needed to be very self-motivated and you needed to be able to take initiative to be successful in an environment like that. And I think those types of things, being given a lot of responsibility as a kid and learning to make decisions, to be able to take initiative, to be able to be self-motivated has really helped gain the skills that are necessary to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. On, the other, on the other side of it, you know, I've really always been obsessed with understanding how the body works and how the brain works and how they interact. I don't think I could tell you exactly when that started, but I remember, you know, the first time I took AP bio in high school and really understanding, you know, this is what's happening in our bodies. And then learning about biomedical engineering and, and starting to look at the very first brain controlled prosthetics and how those work and being able to understand, simulate and manipulate the signals that are being sent throughout our body, both electrical and mechanical signals. I think was just fascinating, was just really, really interesting. And so that's what got me into biomedical engineering and into the neuroscience space. Tell me, you're a very young entrepreneur and you've developed a successful product. So what have been some of the challenges that you had to overcome or lessons learned in running a company? Good question. I mean, I think the hardest thing is really understanding, having the confidence in my ability to start a company. As you mentioned, you know, I was really young when I started this company. I still am young. Um, I started this company while I was in college before I had graduated. We closed our first round of funding before I graduated college. And so a lot of, um, there's a lot of learning that needs to happen. There's also for me personally, I, you know, I can't speak for everybody in this position because a lot of people have started companies in college and I don't know what their experiences are. But for me going into something, 
with not having very much experience, not only in entrepreneurship, but in being in business in general, you know, in, I had never managed anybody. I had never hired anybody. I had never, you know, looked at a PL before starting this company. I had no idea what a customer segment was. I had no experience in sales and marketing. And so there was this insecurity around inexperience that I had to learn to be comfortable with. And I think the way that I've been able to overcome that challenge is partially through, you know, relying on advisors and hiring people who have much more experience than I do in any particular space, which I've been really lucky to be able to get a great team in place around me. Um, But I I also think a big portion of that is just being comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, the whole point of a startup is that nobody has done it before. So there isn't anybody that has more experience running this company than I do because it's never been done. Um, And then also learning how to learn quickly. So being able to get all the information I need and make the best decision that I can at that time and feeling confident that, you know, making a decision and making a wrong decision is better than making no decision and just needing to move forward. Interesting. Were there some advisors in particular that have really helped you? Yeah, uh, my advisors have been just incredible. So hands on. So like I know that I could call them at any point and say anything to them and they they will help me through it. Um, Jan Haynes was was our very first advisor from before the company had even started when I was still a student at Cal Poly, helping us understand, okay, is there really a viable market for this? Is this something that we should really pursue? And she's still to this day, anytime we're hiring somebody, I have her on the call helping us. One of one company she was a co-founder that she that they then took public. Um, but the company that she runs now is called PhysioMed. And then we also have, you know, Jill Stelfox runs a company called Panzera. Uh, John Lipman uh, runs a company called Bodyport. He actually just left another company uh, to be the CEO of this a new startup in, in the Bay Area. Can you talk a little bit about your fundraising experience? What was that like? A lot of startups are having, I would say young startups especially, are having trouble now in this in these uncertain times raising funds. What is your outlook on that? So I think we were pretty lucky um, in the sense that, one, the timing and who we're able to raise from. I think. You know, we were able to get some really great angels on board very early on in our company who either cared about a lot about Parkinson's or just really supported and um, trusted me and my co-founder to be able to build something. Um, I think in general, fundraising is hard and it's going to be hard all the time. You know, everybody says this. Everybody says it takes six to nine months to raise around and you have to be prepared for that. And you're going to get a hundred no's before you get a yes. You know, there's, there's all these things that you'll hear over and over and over again as you're raising money. Um, And sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not, Um, you know, we got really lucky the first round that we did with angels, we were able to get done pretty quickly. Um, You know, and then that completely changed when we went to VCs, we had to completely change all of our messaging completely change how we're presenting the company to this different group because they look at companies differently. 
Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. You know, what's it like to pitch a company to a VC and how much money have you raised to date? Yeah, so we've raised about 4.5 million to date. Um, we raised 1.5 million from angels and then almost 3 million from VCs. And and it is a very different experience raising money from angels and raising money from VCs. I think the the way that you present information needs to be different. From my experience, angels are much more you know concerned about okay how are you going to get to the next milestone um what are you going to do in the next year in the next two years do i believe that you can get that done do i believe that you have a clear enough path to the next two or three milestones here versus when you're talking to vcs the conversation that i have is okay we believe you can get to these milestones we believe you can get to a million in revenue we believe you can get to five million in revenue But what I need to know is, can you be a billion-dollar company? Can you get to $500 million in revenue? Help me understand the need and the ability to scale past this initial phase. And it's a very different conversation. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for others that are trying to prepare pitching a message to VCs? You know, I think the, the biggest thing, um, especially since every industry, every sector within VCs is going to be different and depending on what type of VCs you're going after, it's going to be different. But I think the biggest piece of advice that I can give that will apply to all the sectors is being able to start the conversation before your fundraising is ideal. Um, so, you know, we went out probably three or four months before we were going to start our round and just had conversations with VCs and said, okay, look, here's where we're at. Here's where we want to go. You know, we're thinking about starting a fundraising round in three to four months. I'd love your advice on our pitch deck. Go through the pitch deck with them and be able to get feedback on what questions do you have? What's mm. not answered here? What are your concerns? And doing that with five to 10 people before you go out and fundraise, people who you trust, people who you, you know, can be a little bit vulnerable in front of and open up the curtain. Uh, in a way, you know, be able to say, okay, this isn't perfect yet. We know that, but we're, but we would like your advice. That to me across the board is one of the most helpful things that startups can do before they fundraise. Right. So just very briefly, what would you say have been your biggest accomplishments so far in running your company and the biggest hurdles? Good question. This is a hard question because you can think of so <laughs> many things. So I would say for me it would be number one, just making a device for Jack and seeing him be able to walk out of his wheelchair for the first time in years. That was incredibly impactful and felt like a huge accomplishment, still feels like a huge accomplishment. I think the second one is is actually starting the company in college, raising $4.5 million and being able to hire an amazing team to get this device out to the people who need it. Um, you know, we just got a call from one of our customers the other day who said that she used to walk every single day and then she, then she got freezing of gate and she wasn't able to walk anymore. She stopped walking. She wasn't able to experience that part of her life that was so important to her for so long. And when she got the next ride, she walked for two hours that day mm. and she called us and told us about it. What really stands out to me as success is the people that we help, is the impact that we have on people's lives. That's what drives us every day. What about the biggest turtles? I think the biggest challenge for me, and I, I think we 
talked about this a little bit before, but really the biggest thing for me is to grow this company because everything is new, right? I'm a first time founder, never managed anybody. I've never hired anybody. So all of those things need to be learned. But the the common thread, which we talked about before, is just having confidence in my ability to learn those things, having confidence in my ability to take information, learn as much as I can, whether that's from books, from advisors, from online classes, from peers that are going through the same thing, and then have confidence in my ability to make a decision from that information. You know, the pandemic obviously has changed so much. So I just wanted to hear from you, how has the pandemic changed your work culture? And then how has it changed your own priorities? And it's completely changed our work culture because we became fully remote. So we were in person in San Luis Obispo before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic happened, obviously there was a shutdown. We had to move to be remote. And we made the decision at that time that we were going to be a fully remote company. And so we started hiring people fully remote. And it has completely changed you know, how we track success within the company, how we communicate within the company, um, how the whole company works. Um, but I think for the better. When you say for the better, so you, you don't see having an office or the need for an office, even let's say five to 10 years from now, hopefully when we're out of this whole pandemic. So we have an office space that everybody comes back to quarterly and we meet in person quarterly. So we do see each other in person on a regular basis, but the day-to-day -day activities are fully remote and I, I don't see that changing in the future. What about your personal life, the thinking about your own future? Yeah, I think that it has really underscored for me the importance of having consistent healthy habits and supportive relationships outside of work and how much that can impact your productivity and your ability to work. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your personal life? You know, what are your hobbies? And just kind of run me through how your day starts and how you like to end your day. Sure. So I think to me, you know, being healthy, feeling good in my body is one of the most important things to be able to come to work and be present at work every day. And so, you know, in terms of my hobbies, a lot of that, you know, it's around exercise and being outside because that's what brings me joy. So right now I'm was telling you before this before this call that I'm training for a bike race, doing 75 mile bike race in Marfa, Texas in a couple of weeks. So right now, um, since I'm training for that, I'll wake up at you know 5:45 to 6 a.m. every day, go for a bike ride, come home, make myself breakfast to make sure that my I'm I exercise and I eat well in mm -hmm. the morning every single day before I open up my computer and start working. I used to only exercise at night, but I found that you know it would just be too hard to leave work. I would skip working out, you know, I wouldn't eat well. And so to me that routine of going and working out every morning and then sitting down and having a good breakfast has really helped, you know, my ability to be present at work afterwards. You are an expert in brain science. Would you say that it does help you to exercise first thing in the morning in terms of, you know, being able to, to think more clearly, have more energy? It does for me, definitely. Um, exercise in general, you know, 
there's so much research behind exercise. Getting exercise and being outside are two of the most important things for mental health in general. Um, it's also for Parkinson's specifically, exercise is the only thing that has been shown to slow the progression of Parkinson's disease. We have all sorts of medication to minimize the effects of Parkinson's, the symptoms of Parkinson's, but there's only one thing that has been shown to slow the progression of Parkinson's disease, and that's exercise. And of course, we can look at the effect of exercise outside of that, but that's incredibly impactful. What does your evening look like? I usually work um, until about dinner time, which is like 6 p.m. for me. And then I'll eat a good dinner and usually make myself food at home. And then I generally go for a walk because for me sitting inside at a computer all day, you know, I need to get up and be outside and move after that. Um, and then sometimes there's You know, it depends on what's going on at work, but sometimes there's more work that needs to be done. So I'll get back on the computer make sure everything's taken care of and then try and stretch or read a little bit before I go to bed. And for reference, you live in Austin, right? I do. Yep. I live in Austin, okay. Texas. So what book are you reading right now? <laughs> so I'm reading a Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Can you tell our, our listeners what it's about? Yeah, super interesting. I really, really like this book. And it's actually you know, really relevant to the conversation that we're having today around decision making. Um, I'm only like a third of the way through the book. So, so I can't tell you everything yet. Um, but so far, it has been about how our brain makes decisions. Mm -hmm. And, and about how sometimes, you know, we don't need a whole lot of information to make an accurate decision. Do you have any books that you would say are a must read for any new CEO? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have a list of books that I think are great. Um, I think depending on the type of startup, the hard thing about hard things is always a classic. By that's ben by Horowitz. Ben Horowitz. Mm -hmm. Yep. For me, you know, I've spent, we talked about this a lot on this call already. I spend a lot of time thinking about how to best manage people. Um, because, you know, I had to learn to go from me doing everything to then managing a team of people who are doing everything. Um, and so Drive by Daniel Pink was a really good one for me to understand what motivates people and take that information into my management strategy. Um, so I think those would be the two. There's always, you know, I also have Good to Great and Zero to One are on my list. Measure What Matters is also a good OKR book. Um, But I think those would be my top two. Great, Sydney. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think the biggest thing that I want to get across, because I know if there are any startup founders out there that are listening um, that are, you know, trying to fundraise and going through a tough time, I think the biggest thing is just understanding that it's hard for everybody, you know, and success doesn't come from everything being easy. That's not satisfying. You know, it comes from doing the hard things and staying in the game when it's hard and getting through to the other side. Um, and I know that it can be hard and lonely. And there are, you know, many people out there that are going through the same thing. And so I think it's can be really, really helpful to find people who are going through something similar who you can talk to and support each other through the process. 
Well, this is a great point to end the conversation, Sydney. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and to our listeners for listening. Thanks for having me. Thank you.